Hi, and welcome to episode 8 of Painting the Corners, the podcast of baseball international affairs. I'm your host, Lincoln Mitchell. We're a few days late this week, and the reason for that is, oddly enough, or ironically enough, the World Series and the playoffs. And because of the World Series and the playoffs, many potential baseball guests were naturally focused on that, and they really had to put their attention there. Some were traveling to Chicago and Cleveland, so we had to postpone it. We ended up recording this on Thursday afternoon, which means that we know who won the World Series. We watched that great Game 7 between the Cubs and the Indians. Congratulations to the Chicago Cubs. Uh, a 108-year wait, and I've been, I just was on an email with someone who was waiting for at least half that time. So this is really a great moment for Chicago and for the Cubs, and congratulations to them. But also, you know, a rough moment for Cleveland, 68 years. I don't know too many people who ever remember an Indians World Championship. And it's a tough break for them, a tough loss. But it was a great World Series and a lot of fun to watch, especially if, like me, you didn't have a primary rooting interest. I guess if you were Cubs, it would have been even more uh, enjoyable. Uh, while we do know who won the World Series, we don't know who won the American presidential election. And that seems to be kind of overshadowing everything uh, in the United States, any work interaction. Just this morning, I was walking my dog in the park, and a guy I know from kind of the dog walking, and I said, hey, how are you? And he looks and says, no, I'm just, I'm just stressed out. You know, I, I can't sleep. I never thought I'd lose sleep over an election. I think it's happening to a lot of people. And uh, my hope is, of course, that that'll change after Tuesday. And so before we get started, just some background. My name is Lincoln Mitchell. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lincoln Mitchell. You can follow me on Instagram, at Lincoln A. Mitchell. I tend to tweet more than I Instagram. I want to let you know that I have a couple of events coming up. My new book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball. That's the title of the book is now out. You can order it on Amazon or Powell's or Temple University Press through their website. And if you like this podcast, if you like thinking about baseball and kind of some bigger picture questions around it, thinking about the impact of new media on baseball and globalization on baseball, the changing economic structures on baseball, I recommend this book. If you read the book and you like it, I'll be very, first of all, I'll be very, very grateful just if you do that, but also that you rate and review it on Amazon or Goodreads or elsewhere because that will help let readers know about it. I have a couple of events coming up. One is at Bergino's Baseball Clubhouse at uh, 11th Street in Lower Manhattan, and that is on December 1st at 7 p.m., and that will be a book signing, and I will answer questions and discuss the book. If you would like to go to that event, please uh, email your RSVP to bergino at aol.com. That's B-E-R-G-I-N-O at aol.com. At that uh, signing... I will only be signing copies of the book that you buy there, so just keep that in mind. On December 8th, at uh, the Baseball Center on 74th and Broadway, I'll also be doing a similar event. And if you don't know the Baseball Center, it's a facility that has batting cages and you know coaches, very good coaches, I might add. They run some leagues for younger kids, so it's really a great community resource. They're doing this event. It should be a lot of fun, and they would be appreciative if you are SVP. And the RSVP there goes to Michael at thebaseballcenter.com. If, uh, you can, if you like the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you do, uh, do that, please rank, rate and review us there. We would, again, be very grateful. I would be very grateful. Let me take a moment and introduce our guest. Our baseball guest today is Dave Jordan. He is the co-author with former Major League pitcher John, G- John D'Aquisto of the acclaimed memoir, Fastball John. And this is a baseball memoir and a baseball autobiography that is very much worth reading. I'm going to talk about it in a moment. But SB Nation, which is a pretty reliable source, has called it an instant classic. I read this book. I was very fortunate. He did a, John D. Quist did a book event in, in San Francisco. A dear friend of mine got me a copy, a signed copy of the book, I might add. And I, I just went through it very quickly. I mean, reading, I read it, couldn't put it down very quickly. 
And this is a really, it's one of the best baseball memoirs I've read in a while. First of all, when you read it, it's, it does have some roots in the Jim Bouton's Ball Four. And Diaquisto and Jim Bouton are very different people, very different voices. But it is the baseball memoir, not of the guy who ends up winning the Most Valuable Player Award, hitting 500 home runs, ending up in the Hall of Fame. It's not, Diaquisto, as you know, was not that kind of a player. He was a guy who had a real major league career. He was around from you know, the early 70s to the early 80s for about 10 or 12 years. But it was a struggle to know if he'd make, This was a man who was worried not about, will I win the Cy Young Award, but will I make the roster? Will I make the postseason roster in some cases? And you get inside the head of what that means for a baseball player, particularly back then. It also is a great book about baseball and to some extent life in the 1970s. And he incorporates the music he, he listened to at that time, the music that all of us had to listen to at that time, whether we liked it or not, because it was on the radio. Some of, you know, I did like some of the music. I didn't like others of it. But baseball was a very different sport and a very transitioning sport in the 1970s. We talked about that a lot in the podcast, but Diaquisto really writes about it in a very compelling, Diaquisto and Dave Jordan, in a very compelling and very interesting way. So please check out the book. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it, you know, other online booksellers. Uh, John DiQuisto does some book events. If he comes to your town or city, I really recommend you, you check it out. Dave is also the founder of InStreamSports.com. That's the original first-person athlete writing platform, and you can find, find Dave on Twitter at InStreamSports. Our foreign policy guest today is Manu Bhagavan, and Manu is professor of history and human rights at Hunter College and the Graduate Center at CUNY, the City University of New York, here in New York City. He's a specialist on modern India. He focuses on the 20th century late colonial and post-colonial periods with particular interest in human rights, nationalism and internationalism, and questions of sovereignty. His most recent book is the highly acclaimed The Peacemakers in India, The Quest for One World, and that was published by HarperCollins India in 2012. That was also updated and expanded by Palmgrave Macmillan in 2013. His other major publications, all with Oxford University Press, include Sovereign Spheres, Heterotopias, Speaking Truth to Power, and Claiming Power from Below. That last one was co-edited with, with Anne Feldhaus. Manu has also published numerous scholarly articles, opinion pieces, and blogs. The main reason I wanted to have him on the show, and really the timing could not have been better, is that in March of 2016, so earlier this year, he wrote an essay on the rise of global authoritarianism. That essay was in courts, but it kind of went global. And if you haven't read it, if you like what he has to say here, you can check it out on, on courts, just do a search. And it was translated into German and was the lead cover article for the Berliner Republic. Uh, you can, and I'm going to get to that in a second, but let me just give you some more information on Manu. You can follow him on Twitter at Manu Bhagavan. I will spell that for you. Capital M-A-N-U, Bhagavan, capital B-H-A-G-A-V-N, and on Facebook at Historian Manu Bhagavan. Now, the reason I wanted him on is that with this election coming up, there's a lot of stress around Donald Trump, a lot of concern and about this election in general. But what Manu does in his work here is he places this in a global context so that we, the Americans in the audience who are listening to this, don't, we may think, oh, wow, this is just something weird about our country, what's going on. But really, there are global reasons for this and reasons that originate and cannot be solved just within the borders of the United States. We see this phenomenon all over the world, and Manu helps place it in that context. And at this moment, it may not be the most cheerful conversation and the most cheerful topic but it's a very important one and a very valuable one. So we spent a lot of time on that today. So I want to apologize in advance. This is the last time I hope we will spend this much time on Donald Trump. I felt like the last podcast before the election, it made some sense to do that. However, if things go well Tuesday, 
we won't have to do it so much in the future, but I felt like we couldn't not talk about it today. One brief correction, there was a tangent where we talked about Watergate, and Dave refers to Chuck Colson. He meant to say G. Gordon Liddy. I think given that it was 40-odd years ago, we can uh, forgive Dave for that. So, enjoy the talk. Manu and Dave, thank you, and welcome to Painting the Corners. Thank you for having us. So here we are on uh, the Thursday before the election, and it's a lot on everyone's mind, um, and, and we'll be hearing this before the election, too. So, But I want to ask you, Mono, let, let, let's think about this election. This is fascinating, disturbing, important. I'm sure we could think of other adjectives, watching this, getting ready to vote, or maybe voted early. But can you maybe put this in some kind of a global perspective, the Trump movement, how this fits in the globe? Melania said today, this is a movement. What kind of movement do you think it is? Um, well, first of all, thank you, Lincoln, for having me on the show. I'm, I'm really happy to be here, and thank you for your question. Um, so, uh, I think that it is absolutely certain that Trump fits into a larger pattern. And the larger pattern that I see occurring is um, the rise of what we might call global authoritarianism. Um, and what that is derivative of um, is the globalization of three fact, three interrelated factors, as I call them. Um, the globalization of the economy, the globalization of crises, and the globalization of conflict. And uh, so essentially, through the long war on terror, pandemic health crises like uh, Ebola and all of that, and uh, uh, the, the growing interrelated nature of the economy, um, most, many ordinary people, everyday people, feel um, delinked, dispossessed from what's going on, that they've lost control over their lives. Um, they've lost control over their ability to make decisions for themselves, their family, their children, uh, and their futures. And so um, uh, there's growing anxiety. And uh, you add to this uh, the growing enfeeblement of institutions able to deal with the crises, global institutions and domestic ones as well, and you create a perfect storm of crises. And so we, I, I, I believe we've seen um, since the 1990s, weak states fall first. Uh, so weak states, which have weak institutions, have veered towards authoritarianism first. And we've seen the rise of authoritarian leaders around the world of this stripe. Uh, uh, and the countries you, you can sort of go through. Uh, and then you now see, as, as this has increased, and, and the continuation of the three interrelated factors continue, sorry, the, the three interrelated factors continue on, um, you now see them in uh, strong states, form what we what we would consider strong states. So, for example, AFD in Germany, uh, Germany is as a pretty strong state, um, and in the United States. Uh, so that I think is what explains the phenomenon of Trump in a broad global context, while understanding that uh, there are local factors as well. So, w where does Trump himself come in? Uh, so, through this anxiety, I think you enter populists. Populists come in; they promise the world, they say, "We can fix your problems." Uh, we can do this as we're strong leaders, and we'll take the fight to the enemy. Who's the enemy? Well, everyone else, uh, and the, the, the enemy can often be amorphous. That's what's scary. So that's the moment that we're in. Uh, I think it's part of a global pattern. Um, uh, we see it in sort of, classic, sort of easily identifiable uh, 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 leaders like, uh, like Putin as, a, as an authoritarian figure or, or Erdogan as an authoritarian figure. 
and less and, and, and figures that are less so easy to put in the same basket, like uh, uh, Shinzo Abe of Japan, for example, uh, or Narendra Modi of India, or or even uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I I think they display similar kinds of tendencies. They're addressing the same. They're 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 falling into the same kinds of patterns, although the specifics of it is different in each case. Do you think that? I was just talking to some Ukrainian colleagues today. I was in Ukraine last week, and of course, many people there are very panicked about our election. But there's also a Putin-centric view of the world that you see in much of the former Soviet Union. And Putin seems to me to be, and their argument that my Ukrainian colleagues were making today was, this is Putin's model, what we're seeing in the U.S. Is there a prime mover behind this, or is it these kind of three phenomena that you're talking about that's really driving Authoritarianism. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think that there's a, a some secret cabal or secret force that's making this happen. But I think that uh, as authoritarianism has expanded and the number of populists have increased who uh, sort of lean in that direction, uh, there's a synchronicity that is occurring. That um, uh, the more destabilization occurs, the more nothing seems to work. The more and more authoritarians need to sort of pop up. Uh, and then, you know, someone like Putin is, is operating from a particular geostrategic or geopolitical angle. Uh, he's, t he's primarily interested in reviving the greatness of Russia uh, and, and sort of repositioning it as a global power since its decline uh, from the end of the Soviet Union. Um, to that extent, knocking the United States down a few pegs is potentially seen as something in Russia's interest. Whether that is in fact the case is a whole other matter. I mean, it may turn out to be a complete disaster for Russia if the United States devolves into uh, destructive uncertainty. I mean, given this, what do you, I mean, in most presidential elections that I've experienced or voted in, you know, I have a side, um, and I think, well, look, if John McCain gets elected, we'll survive. Right, more if you know George W. Bush will get elected, will survive Mitt Romney, um, or if you're a Republican, you would say the same thing about Bill Clinton or you know, Barack Obama or whomever. People don't feel that way. And interestingly, you know, we may the three of us in this room, we I suspect that Hillary Clinton would carry you know this office, but but we may we should recognize that people on both sides feel this way. You know, people on both sides feel this way. So so in in some countries, this has led to a kind of authoritarianism that has been strong. But it's also led to instability, right? Weak states getting weaker. Do you see, and this is a question that's more about, but it's looking at the international patterns of relative to the United States. Is that, is that a real threat here? Does a Trump pres could a Trump presidency be that kind of paradigm change for American political life? You put your finger on it. I, think I, I don't think we need to necessarily see a Trump presidency to see this kind of paradigm shift here. I think uh, the, the forces have been unleashed and we're going to have to face the consequences both in the immediate future and with looking, looking down the line for some time. What does that mean specifically? Uh, I think it means, first of all, that um, you know, Trump has, uh, Mr. Trump has played, uh, played up the potency of violence uh, and he's played to people's basest fears uh, and people are anxious about any number of things. So in the event that Mr. Trump wins, I think it is unquestionable that people like David Duke, the KKK, and a range of supporters on down the line will be emboldened 
with racist, xenophobic, jingoistic kinds of language, as well as actions, as we see with increasing numbers of violence targeting African Americans, for example, or as, as just happened, burning of a black church and rebranding it, vote Trump, and so on. Uh, now, if Mr. Trump loses, I, mean, I think we already see speculation on the part of many groups uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton represents the final decline of the United States, and so um, some kind of quote-unquote revolution might be called for, and they're willing to take armed resistance, although they hasten to add, at least in their public comments so far, that they would never fire the first shot. It's just if it comes down to it, they're willing to fight an armed resistance. Now, this is kind of the kind of language and the kind of thing we have never seen in, in our recent lifetimes. I mean, maybe uh, uh, it, it, we'd have to go back decades uh, in U.S. history to sort of really see this as a, as a viable existential kind of issue, um, and maybe even further. Um, so I, I think those are the kinds of things. When you say um, both sides see it as apocalyptic, the choice, um, well, I think that's, that's true. I, th I think for um, Hillary Clinton supporters, uh, they, see this about, they see this decision as one that is about whether the United States is a pluralist, multicultural uh, democracy that for, for which truth matters to some, the actual, ba just the basic principle of truth uh, and honesty and integrity, these things matter, uh, and they think Mr. Trump represents the antithesis of all of these things. And so this is a threat to democracy. It's a threat to the idea of America. This is a Hillary Clinton supporter view and mine. Um, uh, Mr. Trump's supporters, on the other hand, this is where I think it gets more tricky, and I, and I, I think sensitivity to, to their concerns is really important, is necessary, because I think many of Mr. Trump's supporters while they, he has been targeting them with, with uh, uh, rhetoric meant to rile them up, but they are sort of similarly worried about their future, about their family, they're, they're facing economic hardship, uh, and so fears, playing to people's fears as to what the causes of these things are, I think that's what he's done, and he's created enemies for people who see, who now have come to see these groups of foreigners, migrants, or, or local people of color, um, or whatever, uh, as threats to them. But I, I'm not sure that that, I mean... I just want to follow yeah, briefly there, because, because um, I think I mentioned this to you at the conference. I, I was in Israel not so long ago on, for a project for work, and I was had an evening off, and I was eating dinner, and I went to buy some souvenirs, and I was wearing a shirt that said, the, uh, the, I'm with her with the H on it. And uh, the woman in the store asked me, you know, who I was supporting, which seemed like a dumb question given the shirt I was wearing, but, you know, I had to answer it. And then we got, a, we got an argument because she was supporting Trump. And, and I pointed out to her, to no avail, that Trump was running the most anti-Semitic campaign in modern American Absolutely. history. Which, and, and, you know, I heard, a, when, when this all began, I remember particularly, I forget who, but it was a Jewish uh, writer who said, this can begin in a lot of places. Um, this can begin in a lot of places. We know where it's always going to end. And that's a, that's a kind of a terrifying thought. But, and, and it's, but I don't want to be too kind of semetocentric about this. On the other hand, you know, there is this, this rise of this, kind of the anti-Semitism we haven't seen in the United States like that, really, in, in a, in a, going back to, you know, Father Coughlin and Charles Lindbergh. And, and we've seen it around the fringes, on, on both the left and the right. But in the center like this, in the center of a campaign like this, how, this seems to me to be something, and it's not 
it's not a part. Of, it may or may not be part of the global phenomenon because we also see we also see this global phenomenon. My, for my money, in the Jewish state, right, where Netanyahu fits into this pattern you've been describing. But how does that fit into this? Um, well, uh, so first of all, I think you, there is a global pattern here that the the um, uh, rhetoric is unleashed and uh, it makes okay things that were not once okay. Now, having said that, it, let's also be clear that in some ways, what this does is it brings these terrible thoughts and, and vile uh, views out into the open, that the people feel free to say openly things that they may have tried to hide before. It may not be that they didn't think them before. It may just be that they never said them out loud or they never said them in, uh, in company. Uh, so, so the real issue here is the is the extent to which all of this is uh, is normalizing marginal or or behavior that had previously been condemned uh, and 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 pushed to the side as something completely unacceptable. And, and this may be where you saw early in the campaign one of the big things you don't hear from Trump supporters is he's not trying to be politically correct. Politically correct being a euphemism for not calling people racist slurs and stuff. Right. right. Um, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and bring you in, David. But um, you know the the uh, Trump's slogan, "Make America Great Again," which interesting, Ronald Reagan used in his announcement in 1980 as well. Uh, the key word in that, as we all know, is "again." And to some extent, when you talk about the different visions of the Clinton supporters and the Trump supporters, it's very much a forward and backwards, right? Because if you're a person of color, if you're Latino, if you're gay, if you're a lesbian, you're not really dying to go back to the 1950s, the way maybe you are if you're an unemployed white guy, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, so the question is, is, I'm going to put a little bit in a baseball swing on this, which is you've just written this, or co-written this really great book called Fastball John, which uh, I enjoyed reading for a number of reasons, uh, one of which was the perspective of John D'Aquisto, who was never the big star. So you see the, the stress of being a player who's ne who's you know, he doesn't have that long guaranteed contract. He's not going to Cooperstown when this is over. He's worried about where he's going to play next year. It also, because it was a giant, and that, that was my team growing up, but also because it's this period, this very interesting period in baseball history, which is the 70s, most of his career, the early 80s of his career. And there seems, there's a great interest in the 70s in baseball, so I don't want to say how, why was 70s baseball grading, make, let's make baseball like the 70s again, because we still have great baseball today, but what was it about 70s baseball that, that you think... Uh, was so exciting and also so important, and, and because you, can, you say so much interesting about it in the book. Well, you know, it's funny that you bring that up. You know, the other day I was actually flipping through a, um, a book on baseball cards of the 70s, and you look and you see the 1972 set. Everybody has Army-style haircuts, and everybody is clean-shaven, and they're all, they look like they're going in order, you know, as if they were in the military. The next year... You see Oscar Gamble's afro. You see Dick Allen's mustache. You see Reggie, Reggie Jackson's, you know, mustache as well. And you see facial hair in everybody. And a lot of this was due to Charles Finley in 72 paying their players to grow mustaches and whatnot. But, you know, in the early 70s, ball players and, and Marvin Miller plays into this as well, they were told they had a voice. And they had an identity. And it wasn't just the number on the back. It was also the, the name on the, on the baseball card. And that really spawned something pretty substantial. And, and you saw that in the 1972 uh, baseball strike, you know, when, when they went on, on strike for uh, 14 days. And it was 
essentially, um, what was going on, it was kind of a microcosm of what was going on in, in the country that, you know, you didn't just have to do what your boss said you had to do and that you were special. And, and it, not just in a special way that, that you can sell special K or you sell Wheaties or, or you sell razor blades, but you had a voice in your future. And it would take three, four, five years um, with the uh, McNally-Messersmith uh, ruling to uh, give players the right to become free agents, but that was just the beginning of a movement. And, you know, Marvin Miller seemed to be one of the few people who knew where it would end. Um, well, how much of this actually might also, where did the, where did the fans come in to this? Because, um, you know, baseball was something that was really important to me growing up. Um, and, it, and it really felt, so I grew up in Baltimore, uh, and, and the Orioles were a team that, that, you know, Baltimore lived and breathed the Orioles, sure. when, at, at least the way I remember it, and right. it, it might be through the, the eyes of a 12-year-old that I'm remembering it, mm -hmm. but, but, I, but that's what I, I, I viscerally sort of remember. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's as true anymore. It might just be, is it the uniqueness in Baltimore? You know, we lost the Colts, and so we sort of particularly turned back to the Orioles maybe, or is it, is it something more? Is it, the old, is it the old ballparks? Is it, is it the location of these places? Is it a loss? It was a real community. Um, that sort of shifted from the, the 70s and early 80s out. It's so funny that you bring that up because I was looking at this today. The, uh, the Baltimore Orioles, you know, were a fantastic ball club. I mean, they, they, they obviously Boot Powell, who was one of, your, one of your early favorites, and Brooks Robinson and, and that pitching staff and, and, um, and their tremendous gold glove shortstop, Mark Belanger and, and Bobby Gritch, who was, you know, uh, highly underrated for his fielding as well. You know, it, it was a, an amazing, amazing team. And the funny thing I saw, though, was that much like the Giants in the early 70s, they were at the bottom tier of the Nat American League in attendance. They were, there was years, there was six, there was seven, there was eight. And, you know, eight, eight out of 12, and then, then it was like nine out of 14 once the Blue Jays and then the Mariners came in in 77. So, I mean, there was still this affection, and, and the, the fans still had their ball club, and... Uh, you know, it was, they were still one of the, more of the straight-laced ball clubs. They had, Earl Weaver was the manager from 68 to 80, 82, and uh, he had them pretty much in, in line and in check. And, and the whole joke was uh, this love-hate relationship with their ace, Jim Palmer. And then a lot had to do with that. But for the most part, you know, Earl had this sense of keeping the players, the players stuck around, the players loved playing for him. And... Um, it was a really, really special thing, and I think the continuity that was built from his direction is really, I think, one of the things that made people love that, you know, Brooks is always going to be there. You know, Jim Palmer is always going to be there. Um, Paul Blair is gonna, was there from, you know, 64, 65 and, until uh, early 77. So these guys were there every year. Cal Ripken was there for his entire career. Yeah. Extreme example. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, for the most part, there was that continuity that um, people, you know, perhaps like yourself, really grew fond of, that this is not going to change, especially with all the turmoil that was going on in the 70s, whether it was Watergate, whether it was the, uh, the oil crisis, whatever. There was this continuity there that I think made people feel very, very comfortable. That, that, that's, that really rings true to me. I do feel like that was it. You know, you, it was secure. You know who the team was. You knew that they were going to be there. They were there for you as a fan, and you, you know, you sort of, had this bond with these players that I, I think is much harder, at least for me now, 
to, to conceive of something like that in, in baseball. Games. Also, also, if you're between the ages of nine and twelve, four years <laughs> seems like a long time. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think John Lamaster was the giant shortstop, not in a good way. <laughs> Forever, he's there for eight years, right? And if you're there, and forty to forty-five feels like eh, it goes by in a blink. I think it was Bill James in the New Baseball Historical Abstract who wrote that the thing about seventies baseball. He the contribution he made about it, but he said this was. I think it was 70s baseball. I'll be wrong. If I got the wrong decade, it'll be embarrassing. But he said, this was the best baseball we've seen. And he, the reason he said was this. He said that on the field on any given day, you could see a guy capable of hitting 40 home runs and capable of stealing 70 bases. Right? You could see absolute gold glove quality defense. Son is the same person. I mean, Joe Morgan could do all of those things. Yeah. You could see a guy like Jim Palmer or Catfish Hunter who could throw the complete game and throw the complete game. And then he, he saw bullpen guys. So you really had all of that at the same time. Mm -hmm. Jeremy Lerman, who was on the show uh, an episode ago, wrote in his piece that, you know, he, this is an interesting perspective. He wrote a book about MVP balloting, sure. an interesting book. And he talked about how in the late teens, basically, nationally, baseball was very boring. And baseball goes through these periods when they're boring. Yeah. Because, and, and now, if there was a while in the, kind of the, the teen, the, the, the aughts, the 2000 aughts, mm -hmm. where it was this patience and power game. Yeah. People had undervalued defense because the sabermetric research on defense hadn't quite broken through yet. Mm -hmm. And it was a bunch of guys who looked like David Ortiz without the kind of panache of David Ortiz right. waiting to walk or hit it out of the ballpark. And that's a good strategy for winning a game, but it's boring. Mm -hmm. Whereas 70s baseball, you know, you had, you had you know, Felix Milan who would still choke up on the bat like that. And you had shortstops like Mark Belanger who really could hit 190 and still hold that job down. But you also had, you were beginning to have shortstops like by the end of the decade, Robin Yount a little bit, who was expected to, who could, did hit. So you had so much going on. I mm -hmm. wonder why that, if that was a... Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you, you talk about how, um, you know, the, the excitement of the game and, and how it was very boring in, in the teens. I mean, you look back in 1968... This was the 19-teens, not the... Yeah, I know, I know. I know. Um, you look like 1968, there was hardly any offense, and you had at least, you know, you know a handful of pitchers who, starting pitchers, who had an ERA under two. Bob Gibson was 1.12, and then um, they lowered the mound. And it's still, in, in, some, in, in the eyes of some, that it wasn't exciting enough. And then you brought in the designated right. hitter in, in 73. And, um, and what also that, that did was it extended the careers of some iconic figures, whether it was Hank Aaron with, with this, the Milwaukee Brewers, or... Um, Herman Killebrew, DH for the Royals. Yes, in 75. And Orlando Cepeda was the first Gentile DH with the Red Sox. Did you know that? First Gentile to be designated hitter. Tony Olivia uh, for uh, Minnesota. Right. And, so. and another, one of your Orioles, Reggie Jackson. <laughs> okay, then. Yes. <laughs> Do you remember he one year with Baltimore? Yes. Do you remember that? I, I, I ha I, I, that? The only recollection I have of it is that he uh, becomes a Yankee and therefore is, is someone who is, is, is um, uh, frequently the recipient of booze in Baltimore. When, when, when he but played. do you remember his one year with? I'm curious. It was this is weird lost year. And yeah. He played fine. He missed the first month because of kind of a uh, salary issue, and then he played great. He had like 27 home it's runs. Fantastic uh, chapter in his, his. He's written like I think 19 yes. autobiographies. Writes them every few years. Yeah, and he wrote one with Mike Lubick in '85. Uh, and there's one chapter in there. It's it's called Proceed to the Earl of Baltimore, and it tells the whole story about how he got traded and he didn't want to go. And, um, and then how he ended up getting there, and, and uh, Earl just got into his face because Reggie wouldn't wear a tie on, on the plane. You know, it's all, all, that, all that kind of mishigas. But, uh, you know, it was really a, a fascinating story. And I don't know, uh, Dan Epstein, the, uh, the uh, baseball, uh, 70s baseball the historian. baseball in the 70s. Yes. Yeah. 
he wrote a great article in Vice about uh, Reggie with the Orioles. Right, like he also Reggie's lost years. Yes, like yes, it was, it was great. You know, so um, there's the point. What, what year was that? 76. 76. So in between when Boog Powell got traded in early 75 to Cleveland. So that's kind of in, in your... But it was also, a, I mean, it was a real trade. The Orioles gave up Don Baylor, who at that time was, was, was going to be their next big star. And he actually did become a big star, just not mm-hmm. with... And the, the, A's, the A's threw in Ken Holtzman. Yep. Because Ken Holtzman and Reggie Jackson were close friends. Yep. And remained close friends in his Yankee years. That's why Reggie Jackson hated Billy Martin so much. One of the reasons. Um, that could also explain why uh, Billy buried Holtzman in, in the bullpen. Too. Yeah, yeah. Well, Billy, there were other reasons. <laughs> Reggie had that. Reggie, after years later, de- described with the Daily News what some of those reasons were in his mind, which was he thought that Martin was an anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the, the equation also. But right. And, and just to bring it full circle, Reggie Jackson went to high school with Netanyahu. <laughs> That's interesting. So we can get back to the other. So maybe, maybe with that we can, because we can, we can, you're not going to get a pivot like that on the show too often. <laughs> so, so, there you go. So, so I want to go back because you were talking about something, and this is something that's on my mind. So we're going to have this election on Tuesday, and it's a binary thing. Either Trump will win or Clinton will win. And the, you know, the, the analysts are saying it's, it's 75%, it's 65%. Those are, in my view, those numbers don't mean it. There's no difference between those numbers. What it means is that if you put a gun to my head, I'm going to say Clinton, but it's, it's close, right? So there's two scenarios here. One is that Trump wins. And if Trump wins, we talk a little about what that Trump's America might look like. The other is that, that Hillary Clinton wins. And then we can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. What I'm wondering, though, is even in the absence of a, a victory for the authoritarian candidate in this, in this framework, where do we go? Is, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, this, this issue of these people who are Trump supporters about you know, revolutions and civil wars, but you look around the world, and one thing we know about civil wars is that nobody wins them. Right? They're ugly. They go on forever. I mean, I don't think, I don't know that we're heading towards, you know, a bloody, horrible civil war, but I would be very careful about using language like that in the United States or in any country because I think it's just not going to, it's just not something you want. But can a President Clinton put, it's an awkward metaphor, but put this authoritarian toothpaste back in the tube? How, how can she do that? And, and I don't want to put it all on her, although she would be president in this scenario. How can we, as a country, do that given this ugliness and, 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 and the racism that obviously is a, gets people's backs up, shall we say. Right. Uh, so um, I think there are two parts to this. One is the um, authoritarianism here is a manifestation of these, these sort of anxieties, but they are also sort of made visceral. It's, it's sort of made the, 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 the rationale behind it or the motivation for it is made visceral, I think, um, precisely by racism uh, directed at uh, and uh, caused by, for many people, Obama's presence. So directed at Obama um, and sort of emanating from a sort of a distinct dislike for him uh, based on race. Uh, and then, so this racism has been simmering for eight years, and now you add on to that misogyny. Uh, and, and so it, it again sort of, uh, I think, sharpens uh, the the uh, basest fears and desires of people and, 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 and makes the conversation quite ugly. So what do, where do we go? Well, if uh, um, Hillary Clinton wins the election, I think uh, she's going to have a number of challenges. She would have a number of challenges in the best of you know, scenarios. Um, and I think you know she's going to face first a crisis of legitimacy because I think 
we begin with the fact that Mr. Trump probably will not concede the election, or at least might not, according to his rhetoric, thus far. If he doesn't concede, or his supporters at least don't concede, like he might concede, but they don't, uh, she's going to have a crisis of legitimacy. She'll have to deal with that. Here's the one good, here, here's the, the good takeaway, I think. When Hillary Clinton ran for Senate in New York, uh, she faced really strong opposition, as I recall, from upstate. And then she won, thanks, of course, mostly to New York City. But having won, the, the big thing that she did and, and made sure that she made front and center of her as, as seen as the most important things she did first was go visit upstate, go on a listening tour, and make the people up there feel hurt and that she cared about them. And as I recall, uh, this was a huge success. Um, it, it turned things around for her, and she became very popular as Senator of New York. Uh, and she tried, and I, as I, uh, uh, as I understand it, she she is was seen at the time as a responsive senator. So if she can try to do that kind of outreach, uh, and I, she stated that this is her goal. Uh, if she can try to do this kind of outreach, uh, it may be helpful in in uh, calming some of this down. Now. Here's where I'm not so sure. It's not that President Obama has not tried to do that. It's I mean, not 2006 either. That, or 2006 right. when she ran for re-election at once so by a big margin. Exactly. Uh, so so uh, this the situation is much more uh, delicate right now, uh, and and nerves are, are much further frayed. Uh, and so, um, absolutely. And 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 in the case of President Obama, I mean, I think he uh, oddly. Right in the middle of the election, I think greater numbers of people are coming to agree on this point. Uh, he, uh, he, and uh, Mrs. Obama have have been paragons of of um, you know of, of bipartisanship and, and virtue in that sense, and tried to really reach out. Well, he kept Robert Gates on as a defense secretary. Mm -hmm. I mean, do do you see Hillary pacifying the narrative by by doing something like that? Because I think that would probably go a, a, at least a short way toward attaining that goal. Um, I, I mean, I, I think it's uh, almost unquestionable that she will put some Republicans, probably prominent Republicans, in her cabinet, uh, given the kind of support she has from Bill Weld. Mm -hmm. Perhaps Bill yeah. Weld will, will make a reappearance, maybe as Attorney General. Who, who knows? I, I mean, I, here I have no idea. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I think any but you're right. That she has a lot of Republican support because yeah. some Republicans have shown some principles. Right. Yes. Uh, so, so, it, so I think she she will she will do things to appeal to those constituencies and to and to um, pay them back for their support to, to, to sort of say I'm I'm with you too. On the other hand, let's also be real. Bernie Sanders has unleashed the left uh, in in the primary, and the left will be uh, very unhappy if they perceive uh, Clinton 2.0 to be a reversion of triangulation and that kind of thing. So, so I think, uh, well, the, they, they will have an empowered Senate if the Democrats retake the Senate. So Bernie uh, Sanders will be chair of the Budget Committee and Elizabeth Warren will be empowered. So that, that, may, be a, that may be significant for that angle, but we'll see. But there's, there seems another, another issue here, which is that this is, you know, a typically you win an election, Democrat or Republican, and you do some kind of outreach across the aisle. And, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, right? But you try. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not unusual for, for the president of any kind, of either party. And typically you have a problem with some faction within your party. So this, this issue that Hillary has with the left uh, is not unusual. 
The difference is that the the real that we're saying a destabilizing element, which is not how you would have thought about the Republicans in 2008 or, or the Democrats in, say, 2000, is not, it's not about can we get a Republican defense minister, not defense minister, secretary, secretary of defense, sorry, thinking about other countries, you know, or can we get, because a Republican, uh, a treasury, for example, is going to put financial policy that those people don't want, because right. the, the people that have supported Hillary, even if they're conservative, they're traditional Republicans. They're mainstream Republicans. And this is not a partisan, although Trump has captured the Republican Party, you can still talk to Republicans without talking directly to Trump's people. So, you know, and, and, and if we think of it as not, you know, you, you've spent some time talking about how this is not an American phenomenon or not exclusively an American phenomenon, right? There are some elections where you say, you know, only, only in America, right? And then this is a moment where you say, oh my God, also in America, right? Mm-hmm. So in that global context, how do, you know, how do you, even if the, 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 the kind of populist authoritarian threat arises, if it gets defeated, how can, what, what are strategies or have other, how, how do you get that to fade away? Or is it just there? Are we looking at, you know, decades now of this movement being part of American political life? Because that will, over time, have a very, I would think, a major impact. Right. So firstly, um, the the... the extra problem this time is precisely that you can't just appoint a few Republicans to the cabinet and say the problem of bipartisan outreach is solved. Uh, first, again, uh, President Obama did a lots of bipartisan outreach in Congress, not, not just in his appointees, and that never went anywhere. Um, uh, for example, the grand bargain with, with John Boehner, these things never went anywhere. Uh, so first, I think you're going to still see obstructionism in any case. But furthermore, the issue here is that Trump, Trump's base, Mr. Trump's base, uh, do, does not look fondly on Republican right. leadership. So picking elite Republicans to do something, it's the elites in their right. view. You can make Paul that, Ryan Secretary of State right, and, and just create more problems. That's right, exactly. So it's not like you can pick from a, a group of Republicans and, and, and solve the problem. Uh, so this is where I think it fits in the global picture uh, and sadly is not going to be going away anytime soon. Um, uh, until we deal with the global causes of the problem, these these this tripartite uh, form of globalization uh, driving this, um, I I think we'll be hard pressed to solve them in national context because these are this is an, these are international there there's this international layer on top of the uh, on on top of the um, the national layers, uh, and the way to do that to the way to address things internationally in my view is to uh, strengthen and democratize international as well as domestic institutions. These two things have to be uh, functional and viable in order to confront the kinds of crises at, at the magnitude that we are facing them in, in a meaningful way. Well, what's the role of social media in the rise of this authoritarianism? I'm sorry. Um, it seems that you know, as these institutions try to get stabilized, there's outlets and elements out, out there they're trying to still have their voice, you know, and, and you, you do see that in this election, that there's a ton of people who feel disenfranchised, a ton of voters who feel that it's not going to get better. And um, I'd like to hear your take on, you know, where, where social media, you know, the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram photos, where, where that all plays into this. Well, you know, I'm, um, well, I'm not uh, particularly certain myself, but my sense is that uh, social media is obviously extremely important, but in what ways is, is questionable. 
Uh, I think, on the one hand, social media plays to bases. It riles up support. Obviously, Mr. Trump has used it, uh, particularly his Twitter account. Uh, he sort of relies on that for, for a variety of things. Uh, and it's, in some cases, it's backfired on him. In some cases, it's, it's done. It's, he has a huge following on Twitter. Here, here's the thing. I think we'll find out on November 8th. He, I think, in some senses, have, has bet a lot of his campaign on trying to convert Twitter followers into, into voters. And uh, I, we will find out whether that's a viable strategy or not. I think, whereas um, uh, Mrs. Clinton has relied on sort of um, standard procedure, uh, in ground game, infrastructure, mm-hmm. and get out the vote. And you know what's interesting about that is when you, I, from what I perceive as somebody who's been on Twitter for a number of years now, is that the folks that are on Twitter are those who seek information. Whereas, you know, someone on, on Facebook is somebody who seeks a sensation of the past. Why do you go on Facebook right. to reconnect with old friends? friends. That's the sensation. Your high school of, friends, kids. Yeah, exactly. Your high school friends, kids. Yep. And, uh, you know, that, that's what you get on Facebook. And, and, and what you see with, you know, with Trump, with what he's gone through on Twitter, a lot of it is almost, there's almost something of a laugh track with uh, what he puts out there. And, um, and I don't know if, if, that's, if that's a strategy, strategy that works for him because, like I said, you know, the people that go on Twitter go on there looking to seek true knowledge. And his base is, you know, he's almost trying to cultivate a base of people that don't want additional knowledge. Well, well this, is, this is where it actually gets tricky because if you go on Twitter and you try to get things, the thing with Twitter is there's lots of untrue things on Twitter, first mm-hmm. of all. So trying to get true knowledge off Twitter is hard by itself. Secondly, I think there's one more thing with Twitter, which is, uh, as I understand it, it has a, a, a growing base of users, but has not really turned a profit in any way, is, is, a, is in a crisis as a company, um, and, and uh, may have to go a non-profit model in order to continue to exist, as I recall from, a, from some recent thing on mm-hmm. NPR or WNYC. Um, so uh, that's, that's another issue. And, and the criticism of Twitter further has been, I mean, there's some stories circulating, I believe, suggesting that um, Twitter is sort of toast in its current, mm-hmm. current form. Like, it's, it's non-viable. And, and not just because it's not turning a profit, but also because it has grown in such a way that everyone puts out something, and who's seeing it is actually ultimately decreasing. So except for a handful of super users, mm-hmm. um, the average person who thinks, I'll put out a tweet and it will have such and right. such an impact. You know, five people are reading this tweet, or ten people, exactly. or fifty. Yeah. So and it's it's not it's not actually having the impact. And if you have five hundred Twitter, if you follow five hundred people on Twitter, you're just getting random. You know, you you can't communicate. It's it's a it's a fascinating mechanism in, in that regard. Right. It also seems that it doesn't. People, you hear people. I remember when the internet when first was invented. Al Gore first invented the internet. You know, <laughs> you would hear people say, "I read it on the internet." And I always said to them, that's like saying I read it on a piece of paper. Or it doesn't mean anything, right? right? And I saw it on Twitter. But that is now, I mean, you know, you, one of the reasons that, that truth doesn't matter anymore in American politics is because a tweet is a tweet. But, of course, tweet isn't a tweet. Where the tweet links back to is important. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But you see this all the time. I mean, I see people all the time linking to things that are just abject nonsense websites. Right. But it's, it's out there. They got a website, the label on it, you know. I, yes, and, and, and on top of that, there's this, uh, the next tier of, of media outlets, I believe, which trade in, um, in mainstreaming nonsense. So they know it's, I mean, in other words, there's the nonsense websites that just say anything and then either they're doing it for a laugh or to rob people or whatever it is. But then there's a group that's trying to say we're legitimate 
but then we'll we'll um, uh, play up stories for for whatever. And I mean, this is almost it almost harkens back to like yellow journalism, but, but uh, for, uh, for eyeballs. But also, one way to think about to your question is what is the impact of the ascendancy of media like Twitter or social media in general? Another way to to flip that question is what is the impact of 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 what that has replaced not being there anymore. That's an awkwardly constructed sentence, but what I mean by that is that, I'll give you an example. Let's say Donald Trump had never run for president. Let's just say he had decided he was just going to be a rich guy and, and you know, to- toy with it, and let's say we we're talking about a Rubio versus Clinton right now and it was neck and neck in the polls. We would not know of any of these scandals that have come out about Donald Trump. However, there's enough there that if he weren't running for president, he, not Hillary Clinton, would be the one that would be in more trouble with the law, right? He'd be the one facing more indictments, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we're only finding this out because it came out during the campaign. There's no investigative reporting anymore, right? So that, so that the budget, if you get a tip about Trump University a year or two ago and he's not running, there's no budget to follow that up, even though it's headline news because he's such a celebrity anyway. So... It's not just that we have Twitter and Facebook and all this, but we don't have investigative reporting anymore. You know, I hear so many journalists who say, and I'm not a journalist, so I don't know this, but you can no longer get a budget to go to New Hampshire for a week and write one big story. You have to send out a thousand little tweets. And that changes the, the kinds of information that we're build that are the bricks of the knowledge that voters might, you know, people who are undecided or whatever might make their decisions. Right. Well, this is the crisis of media. I mean, I think investigative journalism costs money. Right. Sure. And you have to you have to allow your your uh, investigators time to build a story and so on. And, and with sort of this minute by minute coverage, and trying to beat the beat the other person, that gets harder. So one is that one part of it is that the other though is that um, I, I think I'd, I'd start from a different position perhaps with if, if if Mr. Trump was not running for president and these things were going on and if there's truth to these to, to a lot of the charges or allegations against him. Um, you know, there, there's the additional layer that uh, the shield of his wealth. Um, I mean, he is extraordinary. And the celebrity. And the celebrity. And, 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 and he, has, he has sort of uh, implied as much in, in, on, in, on the famous tape and so on, right. other, in, on other occasions. Celebrity and money have, have, have shielded him, and I'm, and I'm sure many other people too, uh, from alleged misdeeds. Uh, and... Um, and, and, and continue to shield them, because e- in the event even someone asks questions, you know, they can afford armies of lawyers, which can bury people in paperwork and, and, and courts for years. Or buy them off somehow. Or buy them off. And there's lots, lots of defensive mechanisms here. So there's, a, there's multiple strands to the story, and even heroic investigative journalists, um, you know, I mean, they can be subjected to all kinds of things, even if the media put them up. So, uh, uh, subjected to, you know, um, things to push them off and, and, and whatever, as, as we have seen in this campaign where, where uh, a number of investigative journalists have, have done these exposés and then been subject to very well, harsh, you know, for, harsh treatment. For many years, the kind of first rule of politics is if you're in a hole, stop digging, right? What Donald Trump has turned it on its head, if you're in a hole, get out and immediately start digging a deeper one, right? As soon as the sexual assault thing leaked, no one talked about his taxes anymore. As soon as the taxes became an issue, no one talked about Trump University, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way back. And, and that's, I think that is, a, you know, that is a product of the new media system, right? Someone with this Jim Comey, new FBI stuff, somebody, I think, on the right said, or no, on the right said, you know, this is comparable to Watergate. There was a yeah. spate of articles saying, you know, no, this isn't comparable to Watergate, or is it, is it not? And it's not. I mean, in, in my view, that's pretty obvious. But it, to me, the more interesting question is, if Watergate happened now, would we know? 
right? Would, 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 would a Woodward and Bernstein have the ability to follow that story through? And would we, would, would we stay focused on it in this kind of clickbait campaign era? Well, there would have been an Instagram in the, um, when, once uh, Colson and those guys got arrested, and uh, there would have been, you know, uh, definitely tweets and uh, what are these guys doing here and something odd is going on, and there would have been a trail off like that, I think. Well, the, the, the flip of this, or maybe some reflection of what you're saying, is uh, in some ways we, we have a magnification, or, or let me put it a different way, a Watergateization, a Watergateization of politics, which is why every third day something is a new gate, right? Yeah. You know, so whatever, whatever, whatever. There's all there's no always gate. a scandal, and in some ways, the fact that there's always a scandal, whether it's a Republican scandal or a Democratic scandal, it, it harms the left and and favors the right in very abs in a very abstract sense, in as much as um, uh, Republicans have tended to prefer small, limited, or no government. And so dysfunctional government feeds that narrative, for, particularly for those on the, on the further fringes and, and extreme. Those in the sort of center Republican position want a functional government, and they see this as undermining, under, undermining their ability to, to lead, and, and so on and so a George, a, a George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, for example, needs a functional government. Right. Right. Um, whereas uh, Mr. Trump and, and the, his supporters do not. And, and many of the, the House Freedom Caucus do not, right. forgetting President, potential President Trump. Right, and whereas everyone on the left right. needs... But this, needs, is, this is, I, I want to get back to baseball, because I always want to get back to the theme of my life, but, but this also is, is, you know, authoritarian regimes are, they also want governments to function, right? Russia is a strong state, it's not a democratic one, but it's a strong one. They don't. They may want weak governments outside of their borders, right? Or as a way to weaken foes or scapegoats or other enemies, perceived enemies. But inside, they so so this is also strong state centered on on personality. I'm for sure. Sure. No, I alone. No. Yeah, I alone. The I, I alone, which it. is. Uh, so let me, if I can, just move this. I have I have a in my mind the baseball connection is actually quite strong, because for me first my baseball the, my my feelings towards baseball are driven by nostalgia. Uh, and so, um, I, I kind of can put my myself in the shoes of, of, of a lot of people who are concerned uh, about you know fading glories because I, I I feel the incredible power of nostalgia if I think about baseball and I think about the way I used to be very fond of it and and you know you you mentioned earlier uh, Dave for example that uh, the Orioles even at their peak moment um, didn't fill didn't fill the stadium and in fact it, it was mm -hmm. empty. I don't remember it that way. I don't remember it that way at all. I remember it packed. Yeah. I, I remember excited fans, and I—I I, I mean, not just Wild Bill Hagee and 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 you know the the great moments, right. uh, but um, in in version two point of the sure. Great Orioles, uh, but uh, but even just in everyday games, you know, I mean, there I, there were some empty seats. But there were like raving fans, and it was exciting, and it was it was very dramatic. And and as I as I went to games afterwards, of course, the Orioles also began to decline as, as a team. Uh, but then the absences grew more visible to me, and um, the excitement, the air seemed to go out of the fans. And I I, I was telling uh, Lincoln uh, um, before we got started that um, they took some of my colleagues. We're here in New York. I, I took some of my colleagues down to Baltimore. We spent the night, and we went to a 
um, in an Orioles game down there. Uh, and uh, it was the Orioles versus the Yankees. And I was stunned that there were more Yankees fans than Orioles fans. Um, and one of the claims was, well, it's cheaper to go to a game to see the Yankees in Baltimore, take the bus down or whatever, yeah. than it is to go to Yankee Stadium. Um, but but it was also so because there's no parallel explanation for why there aren't Baltimore fans there, and and it was it was extremely disturbing and disheartening to see. So what to me this is this this sort of represents great dynamic changes which which disconnects uh, sort of these cohesive elements that bond communities together. The Orioles mattered to Baltimore, and we loved them. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me, they, they are an essential part of my childhood. And again, you talk about continuity and teams and so on. And that's not only not available now, but through these disc, you know, mobile players and so on, no, no one sticks around, um, maybe as often as they used to. I mean, maybe it was always limited, but it seems often. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but also that the, the, the cohesion and the connection to teams maybe is a little bit less yesterday's game uh, and the sort of finale of, of, of this season, perhaps notwithstanding, right. which perhaps is... Re- yesterday's game was re- game seven of the World Series. Yeah, so. sorry, yes, <laughs> uh, 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 the, the Cubs' victory. I mean, sort of rebonding this town to this team, or, or maybe they, I mean, they've always been super fans over there. Yeah. Uh, but the last part of this is just, but even on this point, I was asking Lincoln uh, earlier, um, you know, these, these, the idea of lovable loser teams... You know, how are they going to screw up? How are they going to mess up? That was always part of the narrative. Um, and the, what's that famous, or some famous um, movie or show? The, the, about yeah. the, the Bad News Bears. Bears. Bad News course. Bears, uh, which is also sort of right. part of the whole mythology and ethos, that these, that these underdogs are there, and, and, and they come real close, uh, but, but somehow they fall apart, but you love them anyway. Um, and, and with the Red Sox, the Red Sox sort of had that, and the Cubs, and, and I guess the Indians are, are, are still there, but um, as these things fall away, now the Cubs are no longer the team with the curse, uh, and the Red Sox no longer the, 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 you know, the team that falls apart. Do we, do we lose some of the mythology of baseball, and does it further fade from, um, you know, sort of from the cohesiveness, or, or is it, does it get bad? You know, it's so funny. I, I, I presented this, this same question to a friend of mine, uh, his writer, Greg Prince, he uh, wrote a book uh, about the wins. He's a he's kind of the poet laureate of the New York Mets to some degree, and we talked about you know the lovable losers, you know that they were the Casey Stengel Mets and whatnot. And uh, could there be a lovable loser team in twenty sixteen? And and I and I think that that part of it was just you know there there was more of an in, lack of a better term, an innocence back in the early, uh, in like the early 60s and the 50s and dem bums with, with the Dodgers that I think we've all gotten a little too, I don't know, uh, aware. I, I think you're, there's, there's a lot going on here, right? Because, because it's not just lovable losers. Because the Orioles were not lovable losers. In 1966 and 1983, they went the pennant in 66, division in 69, 70, 71, 73, 74, 79, et cetera, et cetera. They were a very good team. Yeah. But they were a very good team with an identity. There was the Orioles way, right? You had yeah. Louis Aparicio at shortstop, followed by Mark Belanger, and then with a the quick break, and then Cal Ripken Jr., right? Mm-hmm. So those are 20-odd years, or my math, whatever many years of you know, gold-glove caliber shortstops, because Ripken played beyond 83, of Ooh, course. Cal, Lee, Met, Lee May, Eddie right. Murray. Right, right. These guys were first base, yes. and Brooks Robinson was there. Brooks Robinson played 
more position, more games for one team at one position than anyone in big league history. Mm-hmm. But, but, and, but, and, but and, and and he continues. I mean, he, he finishes and then he becomes the announcer. Right. So, so there's this total. He's an institution, yeah, right? right? In Baltimore right. baseball institution. Yeah. But every team had their identity, right? Yeah. And that was so so that you knew if you were a baseball fan, the Cubs were at that time had been the lovable. Oh, they were good in the late sixties. They were the lovable losers. The Mets, the Mets were lovable losers, even though they were winners. Right? The Mets won the World Series 69 and 86, only 17 years. In a 26, 26, 24 teams, 17 years is not a long time to wait. It's mathematically it's actually not so long at all. Right? But every team had an identity. So the upside of that is that the stories came more easily. Right? Yeah. Today, the structures, which we'll, I want to get to in a second, maybe we can just segue into that a little bit. The structures are such that the teams all function very similarly. Right? The Yankees were the Yankees. Right? But the Yankees, even this late 90s run notwithstanding, between, are not what they were between 1921 and 1964. No at all, right? It's just not, it's not going to happen. So these, so the stories, but the problem is, if you were the St. Louis Browns, that was a horrible story, right? I mean, it wasn't like, if you were the Chicago Cubs, you were Love Belouge, you had your Ernie Bankses and your, your close finishes, and, you know, your, your, your well, Ron Santos and Hack Wilson, but although he was on a few pennant-winning teams, but, but if you were the St. Louis Browns, if you were, for many years, you know, the Pirates, the Pirates went, did not win a pennant in 1927 and 1960. It was a bad story, and a story that ultimately... Baseball couldn't, this is, this is, I mean, and here, here's the, if you want to get the tortured metaphor or analogy, baseball couldn't survive with that framework because teams were going under. Mm-hmm. But, but people still harken back. I'm sure if you went back to Pittsburgh now, I mean, I haven't never been to Pittsburgh, you would find people who would say, oh, I miss really, they will, obviously, Roberto Clemente was, you know, a player of kind of global, baseball global import, but they'll tell you how they missed those days, right? There's a tremendous nostalgia in San Francisco for for the among my generation for the teams of the, of the kind of post Willie Mays seventies, yeah. right? These are not good teams, right? Because it's part of the story. But the the, the city did. I mean, and, and of course, we're we're recording this in in uh, Manhattan, right? But of course, the greatest example of this is Brooklyn, mm-hmm. right? And and Brooklyn, this to me is amazing. I was just yesterday watching Game 7 with a guy who was in his 60s from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. He happens to be a Yankee fan. And he was describing to me before we started, before the game started, what happened in Brooklyn when the Dodgers won the World Series in 1955. He was a little kid. And he was describing how crazy it went. I mean, and, and he wasn't, you know, you've seen the movie. He it was the truth. He said people are leaning out their windows, banging spoons on pots and pans. I mean, the place went nuts. Two years later, that team plays their last game in Brooklyn. Right, and the attendance is down. Even you know, so so what's the the story there? The nostalgia and the story are not always in sync. Just as the nostalgia, it really was it really that great getting getting black lung when you were forty, you know? I mean, is is that where we really want to go back to? You know, in, in America, I mean, was it really that great having apartheid in a third of our country? Is that what we want to go back to? But for and obviously, if you're on the wrong end of that apartheid, it's a resounding no. But for many people, the answer is yes, because nostalgia is a powerful force. But maybe, maybe that's not how far back they want to go. Maybe they want to go back to the 70s and, or even the early 80s when, you know, Morning in America and, and whatnot, where you had an opportunity to make $120,000 as a middle manager for a paper company. Right, as you did in the late Clinton years, too, right? I mean, I mean the, this, this, you know, Reagan ran on Made America. Reagan used the phrase Make America Great again in his mm-hmm. presidential announcement. He talked about a lot. Now, I'm not comparing Reagan to Trump in that way. My political views of Reagan, it was a different, right? There are, the antecedents are, are not, can't be ignored, but it was different. But that going back again is, is an important, powerful strain in American politics, right? And, and, and to, to, 
not to be too partisan here, but you know, for many years, what song was played when the Democrats would candidate would be announced with all the balloons? Do you remember? Happy Days Are Here Again, yeah. right? Which was about the Roosevelt era, right? Yeah. And many American elections for many years have been Roosevelt versus Lincoln. You know, I mean, that's... Yeah. Right. Um, well, n nostalgia, uh, you know, I, I think perhaps it's about a longing for a, a simpler time, and, and it's all imaginary. I mean, it's a simpler time because for many of us, we were kids and people looked after us and there was... But there was also a there was there was a, a, a functional, secure safety net. Um, and we miss that part. You know, a, a lot of the nostalgia we feel, well, government kind of functioned, some, some of it, at least in the 70s and, and before there was a crisis. Uh, uh, you know, you, we had built the New Deal uh, uh, and uh, LBJ's reforms... Um, helped create um, a big safety net, a functional safety net in this country. And I think that that, to some extent, um, uh, the, the long nostalgia that, that we feel um, is also for a, for a society that, 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 that had flaws, certainly. And so this is where it gets very tricky. I think there's some kind of, there's some of it is about economic security, some of it is about like a notion of a social uh, community. Um, while being blind uh, to treatment of people outside of our these, these small groups, so so being blind to historical racism, or not being blind, but be, being less sensitive to it rather. That that's not the priority. The priority is this is when things felt good for me and everyone that I knew, um, and it reinforces the idea that we have different experiences in in the United States, and and very different memories of how things were. And and and, and just to make it. And this is, and John D'Aquisto's memory of baseball in the 70s, yes, there are the fun moments, right? And he mm -hmm. talks about that in the book. There's some great, uh, what happens that one of my favorite passages is when he and John Montefusco, the Count, I don't know if you remember him, another pitcher on the Giants, stop me if I get the details wrong, are racing from San Francisco to spring training yeah. in their new Porsches, right? And they're driving along, you know, the California and Arizona, and they're these, you know, that sounded like fun. I mean, he almost killed himself, but it sounded yeah. like fun, if you're into that kind of thing, right? Fast cars and all mm -hmm. of that. But... And, and that, I think, that, that, from the fans' angle, that does drive some of the nostalgia for baseball of this era. Now, era, that era. Right. But implicitly, from, I mean, stop me if I'm wrong, because you, you have, you're kind of a much inside his mind for, yeah. for the rough process of writing this book. For John D'Aquisto, that wasn't the case, right? It was more complex than that. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that we worked on uh, in, in, in the book, or at least an idea that I had, because you know, music was so important to him, and the music of the era was, was, was huge to him, but then, you know, as we were like, we go over different aspects of, of whether it was the race or, or him hanging out with Steve Ontiveros driving down San Mateo Boulevard, you know, I, I would say, well, what was the music, what music were you listening to at that time? And I used that as sort of a, a, a mechanism to open the box of memories. And I, I wouldn't, he, he, he loves Led Zeppelin, and we talk about Led Zeppelin all the time, but he's heard every single song on there. And I said, well, let's not talk about Led Zeppelin, let's talk about My Maria from Stevenson, from the, 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 the song that was played every, you know, every three minutes on, on in radio in 1973 and 74. And it's like, oh, right, that's right, I was with and we were in Casa Grande, and the memories flowed out, and it became sort of an interview technique. You know, we would, I would talk, ask him, I would play him uh, Stumbling In, Susie Quattro, the song that was played every half hour in every radio station for three weeks. And, and then like they never the played it again. later in the 70s, right? Yeah, that, that was in 79. Yeah, I remember that. And, but it, but it, 
opened up another Pandora's box, and, and he was able to really tell me every single thing that, you know, that, that was going on when he was in Hawaii. This, we, is, this is the one I want to tell this story, because this is, this is a powerful story. Tell the Hawaii story. Yeah. This and, is a great one. You know, and Johnny um, had hurt himself, and uh, the, the star pitcher for the Padres, Randy Jones, was coming off the disabled list. So uh, Buzzy Bavese, the, the GM at the time, and the president of operations, had told Johnny, you're going to go to Hawaii, we're sending you down. He said, we can't really do that. And, um, and then Johnny said, well, I'm going to talk to, you know, the, the head of uh, Marvin Miller, who's the head of the, uh, the Players Association, because this is a violation of my contract. And then Randy Jones, who was the player rep, said, you really want to do that? It's a month. Go down to Hawaii. Go get laid, you know. And uh, so he goes and, and spends a, a month in Hawaii. And, and the conversation we talked about, it, it really went from, you know, all the, the, the palm trees and the grass skirts and whatnot to he discovered that um, his childhood idol, was finishing his last season in Hawaii, and he was one and seven at the ERA uh, north of six, and and he was just having a terrible time of it all, and and I said, you know, Johnny, well, what was the music then? Was it really Don Ho, or was it was it Jimmy Buffett all over the place? He said, no, all I heard was North Hotel California, and and it really that the story it, from as, as we we talked it through, it evolved into this sort of apocalypse now going to get Colonel Kurtz's his former boyhood idol, who was there just sitting in a, um, in, in a bar hut, you know, trying to figure out where he lost his, uh, you know, found his lost shaker of salt, so to speak. And, um, and we called that chapter Hotel Oahu. Huh. But, that's, but that does, you know, that, because when D'Aquisto gets sent down, right, or later in the book, there's a great section in the book where you really get inside the negotiations of a free agent yep. in the early days of free agency, but it's not Reggie Jackson, it's not Bobby Gritch, it's not, you know, a star. And, and I'll let you tell the story, but, but you, get, you get inside his head, mm -hmm. and, and how it, I'll let you tell you know, the details better, obviously, but, but you also see that he was really worried about financial security for mm -hmm. himself and his family and his future, whereas today, if, I don't know, when, when Robbie Cano, if, if he signs with, for 90% of what the Mariners offer him with someone else, he's still going to be, it's still, it's still, life-changing, generational life-changing money. But it wasn't back then, and is that, you know, so, so we're nostalgic for that baseball, and it's different for the players. I mean, D'Aquisto gave the best earning years of his life to this, and he yeah. never, so tell the story, though. Well, it's so funny, just, uh, yeah, we, we were interviewed in, in, in San Fran at the uh, ballpark uh, recently, and um, the reporter for CBS asked us, or asked Johnny, would you rather pitch in Candlestick, or would you rather pitch at AT&T Park? Are you kidding me, AT&T Park? You know, it's just, it, it's such a, uh, an amazing facility. You know, Even the, and they're both pitchers' parks. And they're both pitchers' parks, precisely. You know, but the whole problem with, uh, with Johnny's situation was that his, um, his agent happened to be the agent of a handful, a host of superstars. And the Angels wanted uh, a specific star, uh, their the shortstop, Rick Burleson. And, um, but to get him, they would have to trade their reliever, Mark Clear at the time. So, you know, Johnny had a handshake deal with the, uh, the New York Yankees. And uh, in the middle of the night, before they were flying to New York, he gets a call from his agent. His agent says, you got to come over here now. Uh, you're signing with the Angels. And he says, what are you talking about? We have a deal. He says, just get over here. Just come on over. You're signing with the Angels. And it turned out that the agent used the le his leverage of all his stable of superstars to get Johnny signed here for the extra fourth year and the extra $600,000 bonus. And it's something that, that, that's not spoken about often enough, because a lot of reporters, they can't burn their access with agents and whatnot, but the, uh, the leverage that agents use of their stars to help out their, their lesser uh, 
their, their lesser clients is, is something that really isn't mentioned very often. And, and stop me if I read this wrong, but in, in the book, D'Aquisto, when faced with that decision, he gets the economic side of it. And he gets that Boris is kind of trying, to, but he also had this kind of this dream of playing with the Yankees. Yeah. Right? And, but he can't because he... And then there's a coda to this. Yeah. And maybe tell a little about the coda to this because this is... Well, he, uh, John ended up finishing his, his, his major league career with the Oakland A's in, in 82. And, and that was when Billy Martin was managing uh, the Bay Area. And uh, after uh, Martin was let go, he got the job with the New York Yankees. And... Um, and Johnny thought that he, he was given some advice from Art Fowler, like, you know, when we go, you go, because you're one of us. When the new regime comes in, they're going to clean house. And, um, and Johnny said, okay, well, you know what, you know, I'm under contract. So. Um, so Johnny went through all of spring training in 1983, the following season, and then with about a week to go, the A's cut him. So he had nowhere else to go, and he called up Billy Martin, who he had a very special relationship with, and Billy said, oh, I could use you in the back of the bullpen. Let me talk to George. I'll give you a call back. He calls him back 15 minutes later, and he says, uh, he's laughing, and, uh, and John says, well, Billy, what are you laughing about? It's like, what did you do to George? I just brought up your name. And, and he said, in, in classic Steinbrennerese, no bleeping way, and hung up the phone. So, and, and we do talk about how he knew when he signed the contract yes. with the Angels, this was going to come back to haunt him. And Steinbrenner wasn't wrong in that one. He wasn't wrong. But and that's Johnny how he did business that way. I mean, but, and, and what Johnny says in the book is, you know, I, I got paid three hundred thousand dollars to get that response. Right, right. And, you know, it, and who knows, right? I mean, the Eagles won that bullpen at A three. Maybe the Yankees won that division. You know, you don't. Yeah. You just never know. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to give you two a chance to follow up with any questions that have come up uh, today, or that you want to ask each other, and then we can kind of wrap up. But do you have a. Um, well, I guess I guess um, just sort of tying everything together. Um, w- What's the role of professionalization, the professionalization of baseball, um, in, in sort of um, connecting it to, connecting teams to communities? Um, I mean, do you feel like uh, the bonds of baseball are, are the same today as they were earlier? Are they greater? Or have they weakened? Um, I mean, you know, n- nostalgia aside, because we sort of remember things through rose-tinted glasses, um, where where does the where does the sport stand today, and, and what's its future um, as sort of the iconic American sport? I think that as you're finding a more educated front office among among the, among the league, and my, you've seen a lot more guys who are coming in from the Harvards and the Princetons and and and, and Stanfords of the world. Um, I think they they are savvy enough to understand that connection between the fan base. And the organization, and and you saw that in you know in the previous decade, uh, you had a lot of bloggers, and uh, and they were they you know some teams have forty different blogs dedicated to following the ball clubs, and and these general managers they get it they they created you know blogger days where um, where bloggers can come in and then they're verified and then, you know if, if a certain blogger has X amount of followers and whatnot they come in they sit on the dugout they treat them like beat reporters. And, uh, and they give them that respect, and, and they give them sort of the dignity of, of all this time that they've, they've spent following and, and being so dedicated to, you know, speaking the gospel of, of the organization. So I've got to say that I, I think that most of the, um, the, the front office types have really 
have really gotten it and they understand how important community is. I mean, each one of the, the, the clubs, they have a social media director who's, who's monitoring everything that's said about the ball clubs on Twitter and, and, and Facebook as well. And, uh, and they're, they're very cognizant of, of how important it is to make sure that the messages are right and, um, and they're reaching out. Like the Mets have a, um, have a, uh, like a, uh, something for, uh, for underprivileged children every Christmas and four or five Mets players dress up like Santa Claus and, and whatnot. And, and so they, they all, there's a lot of great outreach that has existed from the time of, you know, Dave Winfield was buying uh, seats in uh, the left field for, uh, for the Padres and then underprivileged kids in San Diego that you're, you're still seeing that, you know, these teams recognize the, the power of the community. And, um, and I, I think it's still there, and, and I think it's really, and it does get stronger every year as you're getting more and more savvier folks come, coming out of, of, with great educations running these clubs. You know, um, that, that just reminds me, um, Angelos in, in Baltimore is very purposefully running these super inclusive campaigns and has um, been quite vocal in stating that the Orioles stand for the diversity of Baltimore. And I gotta say, it really warms the heart of yeah. this, you know, the 12-year-old the kid in me mm -hmm. and the adult in me. It just makes me remember with fondness and feel it again, that yeah. old passionate love I have for this team. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's, especially with what's happened in Baltimore, of the past couple of years, that's a very, you know, there have been some tense situations in, in that city, and he needs to make sure that uh, that he's on top of that and, and including everyone, because that, that is a very uh, multicultural community where they're right in the middle of it. Yes, and, 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 and contributing to the healing that needs to happen while mm -hmm. also um, understanding that um, uh, healing has to go hand in hand with larger questions of justice and so he's sort of playing these roles mm -hmm. and, and, and in that sense baseball it, this represents the best of what baseball can be. Yeah. And, and you know for many years represented the worst of what baseball could be George Sternbrenner would attack the neighborhood in which Yankee Stadium was located. Mm -hmm. now, this, that neighborhood was heavily Latino uh, so it always had a raci ugly racial side to it and you know I mean, of course, Latinos don't, I'm joking. Latinos are big baseball fans, right? You should yeah. embrace this community and get them to come to the game, right? Um, we don't see that anymore from the Yankees. You know, if you, if you just, it's one of the, you don't notice the absence, but they don't do that anymore. And it's not just because, you know, George Steinbrenner passed away. This is a different approach. I think there is a more, there, there's a much more big, greater awareness. Also, you can't do that with half your players are Latino. They're not going to tolerate that mm -hmm. kind of language. So it's, you, you see it, it, it is, and, and I think teams work at it in, in a really different way. Although, I will say, I still have yet to see a, a gay or lesbian couple on the kiss cam. Well, and, and, we, and, and we also, um, there is clearly much progress yet to be done, uh, and, and that also is sort of reflected in the World Series. I mean, I, I, think, I think many of us at least would be happier if the Indians would do away with that mascot. Yeah, I thought, I, I was very struck that they continued to use the image in the World Series. You could have put a C on your cap. And left that patch off. I don't change the name. I mean, the bigger picture. I'd like them to go back to the spiders, like they were in the, you know, turn of the last century. I think that would be great. But I maybe I could see not doing that in the middle of the World Series. You didn't need to wear that mask. I mean, that to me was, well, I agree, that was really striking. Well, I, I guess one way to kind of wrap this up in, in terms of the election, um, I've been obsessed with the the notion 
that one can separate their ego from their political identity. And, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, because I think there's a, a ton of people out there and a ton of voters. I mean, you, you look at the, the post-debate interviews, and a lot of people would say, you know, why are you voting for Trump? Because I don't want Hillary. And people have been indoctrinated and, and just, you know, for many, many years, like, that's the person you don't want to vote for. And then to turn around and say, you know what, I'm going to, I think I have to change my mind. It's difficult for a lot of people to change their mind, because then it, it makes them think, wow, for these last 20 years, have I been wrong? And, and, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Can we ever get to a place where, you know, where we can have enough of a dialogue in the absence of, of, of media where, where people can separate their ego from the identity of who they think should be, you know, mayor, dog catcher, president? You know, I'm, I think that's an excellent observation. I, I think the answer is we've seen growing retrenchment uh, over the years. People have sort of gone back to their corners and, and are sort of always ready to fight. Yep. Uh, and everyone on the other corner is the dreaded enemy. And um, uh, again, we don't want to think about the American political landscape with nostalgic rose-tinted glasses because it's always been pretty harsh and it's mm -hmm. been particularly harsh for certain communities. Uh, uh, that have suffered under uh, as a result of that. But um, nonetheless, I think it is imperative, incumbent on all of us, and this includes members of Congress on both sides, um, whoever is in the executive office, and, and, and everyday people. Who could, this is something we can all do and take into our own hands. The f find people you politically disagree with and uh, have open conversations where you insist that it's going to be friendly and, and, and do things beyond politics with them too. Like, let, we can do this. We're, we're, we're neighbors. Uh, we're, we're part of the same community. Um, what, you know, Saturday Night Live um, recently ran this really sort of brilliantly uh, observant piece called Black Jeopardy yes. yeah, with, Tom with Tom Hanks. That was fantastic. And, and he sort of really nailed, I, I, I almost went with the brilliant David Pumpkins, but no, no, I, no the, 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 that was brilliant, but for a different reason. Um, uh, no, this, but this Black Jeopardy skit, you know, it, 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 it really got to the heart of the issue, that, that there's a lot of um, angst, a lot of fear and anxiety, a lot of distrust uh, that has built up, and that have built up sort of in siloed communities that sort of share a lot of things, uh, but we still have to confront great demons that have that have driven this society and and, and, and many parts of the world. Um, you know, we have not yet put racism away. We have not ended misogyny. Um, uh, we have not fully embraced the idea of of uh, full and just equality for all of the divergent, rainbow-colored mm -hmm. uh, peoples of the world. And so I think, I think that piece we have to confront, that, that, that we have progress, we have, we have a ways to go, and we all have a responsibility to try to move us uh, further in that direction, while also saying, look, we share things with everyone, and there is common ground that can be found and 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 common decency, first of all, in talking to one another, and and in this case, 
you know, I mean, uh, bipartisanship is one thing, but it's also important to call it out. Mr. Trump has not has not abided by any of these rules and has done more to debase and degrade the conversation, I think, than any uh, candidate in recent memory. And, and that is why he has been rightfully condemned by so many Republicans. And condemning is really, really important in this case, but now there's another piece, which is actively rebuilding the bonds of trust and faith in one another first, and then in institutions, in, in community, and in institutions after that. Well, we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, David. Oh, thank you, Lincoln. Thank you, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today as much as I did. Again, my name is Lincoln Mitchell. You can find me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. Our foreign policy guest, Manu Bhagavan, is on Twitter at Manu Bhagavan. And our baseball guest, Dave Jordan, is on Twitter at Instream Sports.